We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. This is the second part of a two part episode. To hear part one, listen to last week's episode and then come back for this one. I think it's a very powerful tool that we're capable of equipping ourselves with. Maybe a question out of this is, do you think deep listening requires wholeness or healing for the deep listener? I think that the deep healing kind of comes out into the open. In uh, we might say in the in the we might put it this way, in the vulnerability in which we begin to acknowledge maybe we don't know how to listen, and in the in that in that acknowledgement that I don't know how to listen, deep healing begins. See the healing of listening because then I I can listen to what I just said. Mm-hmm. I can listen to just what I said, and then if I put I want to put it as a prayer. Then I say to then I say to God in prayer, you know, I'm I I think it's true. I really don't know what listening. I don't know how to listen. I think I'm a, I, I think I'm afraid to listen because mm. listening implies an act of trust. And when I get quiet, the voices of pain come up inside of me and drown me out. Yeah. It's not Thomas Merton says we live in a world we've forgotten how to listen, and therefore you learn not to listen to survive. You're bombarded with Heidegger called chatter. You know, mm. So how can we get through the chatter to hear the, the, the voice of sincerity down underneath it all? See, I don't know how to listen. Because in the acknowledgement, I don't know how to listen. As I sit in that, in that pause, that little pause of the acknowledgement, the listening is happening. See? Yeah. And then you see what comes up from that. Does that make sense? And, you know, it's, it's very intimate, really. Um, yeah. It's it it's uh just a profuse honesty with the moment is yeah and for that to to not be led into an excuse I think that 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 pause is what creates that honesty to be pure and right. and truly vulnerable yeah you know some work I recently did on sobriety like the mystical dimension of each step of AA. You know, the, the first step is we have come to admit uh, that our lives have become unmanageable and we're powerless over alcohol. Now, to admit is to acknowledge is true, something we would do anything not to have to admit is true. That is, admitting is reluctant acknowledgement. Mm, mm. But here's the thing about recovery. If, if you admit, you're admitted. You get through. If you don't admit, you're not admitted. You might die, actually, just in case you can't tell. Things are, Dr. Phil, how's it working for you? <laughs> but, if, but, if, but if I admit that my life's unpowerful, it would be an act of despair if it's up to me. Mm. Therefore, to admit as hope, maybe it's not up to me. 
maybe you can achieve in me. So the person in recovery says to their higher power, I don't know who you are, but I do know who you are. You're the one who saved my life. Hmm. And I don't know who I am, but I do know I'm the one you saved. See? That 11th step kind of, you know, I think anything, whether it be a marriage or with children or in ministry, poetry, any creative act has this quality that we're trying to speak of here. Yeah, I, I, I love how you ended that answer right there, moving toward this creative act, yeah. because it, that that feels so profoundly true. Uh, to whether it is the poetic word um, or living a life, the creative act of living our lives. I don't know who I am until I'm with you. I, I think about my marriage. I, I think yeah. about that honest. Thing I say to my wife is I honestly don't know who you are and I don't know who I am, but yeah. except in the presence of you, when when those moments of deep listening actually happen, and they don't happen very often, as you said, because we're either afraid to listen or uh, I'm wondering if I'm trying to articulate this question, and I'm not, and I'm, and I'm failing. Profoundly, <laughs> which which suggests that we're in a in a very uh, important place for me that I don't know what to do with, but I'm wondering, does this, I guess maybe a simple way to get back to this until I figure out how to articulate this, does this resonate well with what the early Christian tradition talked about, like care of the soul, uh, that basically that this was an entire divine therapy. That the mystical path is 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 kind of a recovery of that. Is that what you're talking? Is that play in here? Yes, it, it is very much so. Very much so. So the early desert fathers, the early desert mothers, for this white martyrdom, this inner martyr. So you go to your cell, and your cell will teach you everything. Mm. Go to your cell, and your cell will teach you everything. And what the solitude does, you see, being alone with no addictive props or escapes, mm. you end up living with yourself in God's presence. Mm. And then where do you go with that? And so, I mean, that's, I, mean, I love this saying by Merton. He has this, um, when I was in the monastery, then it was, use sign language. It was real silent, but very strict. You just silence, cloistered silence. It was great, actually. And, uh, he, and Sundays were just like every other day in the monastery, except there was no manual labor. So you got up at 2.30 in the morning to chant psalms. You went to bed at 7.30 at night. And, but there was no no vis, no TV, no radio, no talking to each other. And he's, he's describing Sunday afternoon in the monastery. And he says, he said, the young monks lean sadly up against walls, asking questions that have no answer. The old monks are silent because they've given up interest in speech. Mm. It's like a person, like some, you can tell someone's crossed over. You know what I mean? They, they've crossed over in the need to explain anything to anybody. But they're they're like um, available for everyone for whom they might be helpful, mm. and I think if we let it when we live with someone in marriage or intimate relationship, if we if we really let it, it grinds us like wheat. You know what I mean? It just really, if if we let it, and sometimes it doesn't work. We have to leave. You know, then that grinds us like wheat. Mm. See, I have to listen to the truth of my heart, whether this is a life giving, nurturing thing and how can we keep pulling each other's covers to stay real that goes on in a parish too as anyone in ministry this process goes on with the people you're serving this feedback loop to yourself and it keeps us real yeah it's true yeah. 
I wanted a clarification, James, on um, when you said T.S. Eliot's to hope too soon is to hope for the wrong thing. Yeah. And then you follow that by saying to speak too soon is to speak for the wrong thing. Yeah, well, to speak too soon is to say the wrong thing. Is to say the wrong thing. He didn't and say that. I'm saying that. Was those I'm are your poet. words. Yeah, yeah those are his because he's a poet. Do I mean, so you can tell that that powerful poem about the deathless nature of love kind of thing is that so to hope too soon is to hope for the wrong thing. So then I'm saying implied in that, see, to speak too soon is to, is to say the wrong thing. How, yeah. how can I say anything to you helpful if I haven't listened to you first? Mm, and how yeah. can I learn to listen to you over and over and over again so that every time we talk, I can meet you like this. Mm-hmm. And, and to speak too soon insinuates you've prepared something without listening and exactly exactly and like merton says a hope that rests on calculation has lost its innocence yes it, it, yes, yes it has yes. See, yeah and, and see that's why see that's why i say that see just beneath the anger is the mm. Pain. Mm. pain and just beneath the pain is the powerlessness see? Mm. so until you listen to the anger and join them in the anger and acknowledging the seed of truth to their anger mm. maybe more than a seed yeah you can also start to see the pain that they're in see? Trying yeah. to, by using anger to kind of hold on and by joining them in the pain and empathy, the power of empathy, to see back, then this can lead to the acceptance of the powerlessness. But if it's a powerless, deeply respected, it's deliverance. Mm. That's a gift of tears. I mean, that's experiential salvation or that's, yes, yeah, what we offer each other. Yeah. James, listening to you, I, just have images in my mind of cable news the people talking over each other and shouting over each other and not allowing one to finish one's point and i'm just feeling kind of a sense of grief now because that is the discourse that we live in you know you mentioned the chatter and when you talked about the chatter i went to the interior chatter which I think is a challenge all of us must face. But then this this exterior chatter that has become so emblematic in our culture. And I, I, I don't really have a question for you other than just to express that I feel some real sadness right now. And... And I suppose the best thing any of us can do is to step into opportunities we have to listen, hopefully with greater presence. That's right. That's really, that's really true. See, this is Merton's thing on his book, Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, that he wrote during the Vietnam War. And his book, Seeds of Destruction. And this kind of ideological thinking you know, Martin Buber says the characteristic of all true dialogue is the mutual willingness to change. Otherwise, it's just interrupted monologue. And you don't even let the person finish. And you know what I think the exception to it is? It's very good. Is um, on the news hour, every Friday they have the bo- the two journalists. Who's the guy from the New York Times? Um, yeah, 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 Republic. Yeah. He's so good. David and- Brooks. Yeah, David Brooks and the, and the person with him. And notice it's completely free of any, di- you know, they're both genuine how they see things. They don't agree. Okay. But you get the feeling real interaction is happening. You know, a, a point of convergence, like let's meet in the middle. 
somewhere. So, so what, then what would it mean to be the contemplative politician? See, what would it mean to be someone who wants to meet in the middle in a constructive way for the sake of the common good? And what happens when so many tripwires get hit, no one's even listening to anybody anymore. And that becomes the norm. And then the temptation is to become cynical, turn it off. So how can I keep my heart open to not give into that? And at the same time, listen to the voices that are prophetically trying to like go beyond that. Do I mean, it's kind of a social justice in the world. Like how do I, it's how do we contemplatively listen to the evening news? See? You know what I mean? Really, how do I, how can I be contemplatively present to the complexities and challenges of the real world? Mm. Like a yeah. like Alexio Divina of the yeah, news that, of the world. That's why. The, and Jesus lived in that world. It wasn't an elitism. He walked the streets and engaged with the fair. Engaged with conflict and with he. He was right in the fray of it all. But he was never. He he never. Richard Rohr says uh, the word nice isn't even in the Bible. <laughs> Jesus never said, "Blessed are the nice." He wasn't always nice, but he was always loving. He never bought in. He never accepted the hook. He never got hooked with the with the reactive response. By truth to power, he always was just right there, right there. And that's why I think Thomas Merton says those committed to social justice must be detached from the outcome of their effort, because by human standards, it may go down in flames. It's right. like the cross. It's like the mystery of the cross. Right. But love is invincible. See, that's, that's the word martyr means witness. The person gives witness to the deathless truth. And so how can I bear witness? And that implies acknowledging my internalized reactivity. The only therapist who's safe with the patients is the ways that therapist knows he or she isn't safe. Because mm. until you own that and watch over and take responsibility for it. In any marriage, the only thing that makes any sense is that you're very aware of the contribution the other person is making to your misery. You're, it's not as easy to see the contribution you're making to theirs. Mm. Right. And, uh, and we're, always, we're always open to this feedback loop of when everything else fails, try reality. It has to do with the encounter that raises up all this stuff. Richard right now is having this big thing on on racism, on if if you're in a position of power, the white person, mm-hmm. how do we be more consciously sensitive to what it feels like to be surrounded by people who not only don't look like you, but there's this unquestioned built-in societal thing. And how can we have empathy and join them? And how can they have empathy? with us and so this is a this is a big thing i think for all of us where contemplation touches the the way we live in the world the real world our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence please take a breath with us and join us for this 30 seconds of silence I hope this isn't 
taking us into a different direction, but I think it, I think it's building on what you've been saying. Uh, I run the RCIA program at my parish. My wife and I run it together. And one of our sponsors recently sent me an if infographic called The Seven Sins in the Digital World. And it's looking at the, the classical notion of the seven deadly sins. And it says, Tinder represents lust. Yelp represents gluttony. LinkedIn represents greed. Netflix represents sloth. Twitter represents wrath. Facebook represents envy. And Instagram represents pride. Mm -hmm. And of course, coming out of the contemplative tradition, I'm more interested in the desert mothers and fathers and the notion of the the afflictive thoughts rather than the kind of moralizing filter of the deadly sins. But it makes me realize that even just to be engaged with the online conversation means we have to enter in with our own acknowledgement of our, of our, our own right. afflictive thoughts. That's right. And that we're going to bring those to all of those conversations. That's really true. And that's, that's this idea that I have. Uh, I, I have this idea from the Vipassana meditation teacher, Jinsen Young, about a monastery without walls. So this is the idea of monasteries in cyberspace. See, So likewise, see, what is the spirituality of the internet? It's, look, at, look at us right now talking in different places, different times. And people are going to be listening to this at a later time to this point in time, which for them will be that point in time in which they listen to this place at time. And and someday, by the way, it might be a day all of us here will have been dead 500 years and someone will be listening to this talk. It, we, we died 500 years ago. And so there's something very spiritual about this. So how can we turn, you know, what is the, what is the spirituality of the internet? How can we not engage in its downside Pathetic witness to what it's capable of offering people. And James, I love what you said earlier of silence when you said the virginal newness of all things. Yes. And it reminds me of of Merton when he said, when he talked about perhaps I have an obligation to preserve the stillness, the silence, the poverty, the virginal point of pure nothingness, which is at the center of all other loves. Yeah. And just uh, the idea of it's this this renewal, this newness is an uncovering. Yeah, yeah. I think this would be a nice thing to end on. Okay, this is uh, this is from uh, that book, the book of ours, mm -hmm. the lovely book that she did. Yeah, and it's lovely. Kathleen Deegan and uh, Merton. Yeah. And this is I put in this I put in my forward that I did to it. So. And what's interesting about this passage is not only just how it pertains to what we're saying here. And I would add this thought too, I want to say. Let's say there is our life in the ego that's complex and real, the human experience, and it deserves attention and it's, it's hard work being a human being and how do we keep doing this. There's also the life of the, the ego illumined by faith. See, how do I bring the convictions of my faith to bear it on my, my life? And my, see, which requires its own effort. You know, it's own ascesis, it requires its own effort, how to integrate into the ego. And then there's also the contemplative mystical life. And if you're drawn to it or called to it, it requires its own effort. 
do I mean? It requires a certain kind of obediential fidelity to it or kind of a surrender to it and how that mystical permeates down to the ego and through faith. So one of this text has that in it. But also it's interesting, he's writing this to a Muslim and he's writing it to a Sufi. And so you see this contemplative ecumenism where people meet each other respecting the differences and the oneness that permeates it transcends the differences. So I'll share the text, it's nice. And we'll, we'll draw this to a close with this. He says to uh, Hafiz, he says to this Muslim, it is not easy to try and say what I know I cannot say. I do really have the feeling that you have seen something most precious and most available to the reality that is present to us and in us. Call it being, call it Atman, call it Numa or silence. And the simple fact that by being attentive, by learning to listen or recovering the natural capacity to listen, which cannot be learned any more than breathing, we can find ourselves engulfed in such happiness that it cannot be explained. The happiness of being at one with everything that is hidden in the ground of love. I suppose what makes me most glad is that we recognize each other in this metaphysical space of silence and happiness and get some sense for a moment that we are full of paradise without knowing it. That's beautiful. Another, I'll, end, uh, I'll use this to end on too. I like this. Merton was uh, a major feast day. Is one of the monks who be asked to give a sermon to the community. He said, everything said in this room, everything said in this monastery should come out of silence. <laughs> and its fruit should be to deepen the silence. He said, we think, we tend to think we're real because we make noise. We tend to think the more noise we make, the more real we are. We should never forget that all of our noise comes out of silence and is very quickly returning to it. See? And so what is this kind of deep silence of God? And it, it echo, that's why I say it echoes in the chanting. You can hear the cadences of God's voice. See, the chanting is deepening the capacity to listen. And so there's this kind of re, like refinement of the listening to the eternal silence through which God can speak through us, so love can use us for its own purposes in the world. You know, there we go. Mm. Anyone else here as we wrap this up, or any final little thoughts? You know, I think we were all struck by something that just really is very powerful to me. Um, when you said that the mystic isn't someone who says, "Look at my experience," the mystic is someone who says look at what love has done to me. Yeah. And that, I mean, that just brings me to tears. And I think it's something that we all strive to live in that way. It's just so beautiful. I, I do too. I was once giving a retreat. There's a, was a Christian Zendo up in uh, Mercy Center, Bur Burlingame in San Francisco. Father Thomas Hand led it for a long time. He's a wonderful person. And they asked me to give a talk there to the Zendo, to the community there. And when I was done speaking, one of the people in the group raised their hand and they said, you know, a number of my, she said, a number of my friends are here with me and they know I'm not, a, not at all an emotional person at all. But for some reason, when I listen to you, I want to cry, she said. And then I said, well, just to let you know, when I'm talking, I want to cry. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, your heart breaks when you try. And that's the true word that's right at the edge 
Mm. I mean, the, the voice, the, uh, the non-impositional voice mm. that calls forth what's best in all of us. And all yeah, of, that's the logos. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the word right there, I think. Yeah. As, as a person who, who struggles with speaking and anxiety around speaking, that's usually my instinct is I just want to cry. And so yeah. that's actually really comforting to hear. Yeah. You know, I used to have a heart. I'm very shy. I'm introverted, partly because of my trauma, but I'm also very introverted. Mm -hmm. For a long time, what I found so embarrassing, I could give talks like this to groups. But for some weird reason, whenever there would be liturgy and they'd ask me to read the, the scriptures, I would hyperventilate. Mm. And there'd be a whole room full of people that came to hear me talk. And my voice was shaking. I could hardly get through. Mm. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> it took me a while to sort all that out, what that was about. Hmm. I mean, there's a way we need to take care of ourselves. I mean, we need to set boundaries, wrap ourselves in white light and understand what all that we do. And the more you do it, the better you get at it and so on. But there's a certain way we have to not care. Hmm. We have to not care. Here's someone give a talk once. They had cerebral palsy. He was talking. And, and you could, it was moving to watch him give the talk. So somehow we have to do our best to care, not just for our sake, but the people have to listen to us because if you're sitting there crying for 10 minutes, it's, you know, it's a bit, difficult. <laughs> you have to be responsible. But on the other hand, there's this willingness to live at the edge, like Merton called it a boundary person. Mm. And what's right at the edge is the true center. See? Mm. And it's for like the cry of the heart that comes out and speaks the truth in this moment. And, there you go. It reminds me of Ignatius of Loyola's concept of being disinterested. It is. Yeah. Very much, that's exactly, it's exactly what it is. And also Bernard of Clairvaux and disinterested love. See, mm -hmm. amo ovia amo. I love because I love. Only love is its own reason. Yeah. Yep. Everything has a reason except love. So if I'm speaking on love's behalf, or I'm speaking to let love speak through me, then I think that's, I mean, that's, and so I have to listen to love in order for that to happen. So. Mm. Okay. Oh, that's more than okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know what, you know what made this so good? Really? Is it the four of you are so deeply into this yourself? Mm. What made it so good is that we're so good. <laughs> <laughs> is it keeps touching what in our heart we know is true mm -hmm. i guess that's why you want to record this because you're trying to this Ooh. is the ministry in a way and it's then the same hans conan i came in to ask him a question i forget what it was on the zen retreat he said you know inside of each one of us there's a teacher and inside of each of us there's a student most of us tend to be a lot more comfortable with the teacher than the student. <laughs> but, but if the teacher could be tenderhearted toward the student, there's that part of us that doesn't quite get it yet. <clears throat> that willingness to keep circling back mm -hmm. is kind of the touchstone that lets us be with everybody like that. So, anyway. mm. all right. Blessings to you. Very nice. Blessings to you. Thank you, Thank so, you so much. much. Right. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com.
I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, kevinmichaeljohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is carlmccollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at encounteringsilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit patreon.com slash encountering silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world. <laughs>